Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's great books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 200 of the great books over the next 10 years and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each of the great books. Today I'm going to cover Assyria, The Rise and Fall of the World's First Empire by Eckhart Fromm. This is book 18 for my 2023 reading list. I'm taking a slight break from the great books to learn about some of these ancient civilizations. I just never studied these in school. I know very little about, uh, about these empires. And so I'm taking a three-book break here to read about Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. So the first one here is Assyria. And the in the order I chose is just based on when they interacted with the Bible, really. So the you, the Assyrians went into the kingdom of, of Israel, and uh, the, the people of Israel were exiled to Assyria. Then you had the Babylonians going into Judah, the uh, kingdom of Judah, the people of Judah being exiled to Babylon, and then Persia conquering Babylon, and a lot of the people from Judah uh, ending up in Persia. So that's kind of the order. But what's funny is that is called the Neo period. So the new period. So the Neo-Assyrian period or the Neo-Babylonian period. And these civilizations go so far back that the new period is the one that interacts with the the Bible, the time of the Bible. But uh, but these these civilizations are, are are so far back. So when when uh, in in this book here about Assyria. Uh, Later on, you get to the the neo part, but but uh, it's just interesting the, the how far it goes back. So when when we consider the the time periods, the, there's three main periods of Assyrian history. There's the old, middle, and uh, new, the neo Assyrian period. The old is from 2020 BC to 1730 BC, and I just I, I, it's cool for it to be 2020 because that's kind of we're on the flip side in the 2020s now. Uh, so just think that far back on on the flip side and you're in the old Assyrian period. Something major that happens during this time is that Assyria conquers Babylon in, in 1800. Next up, you have the middle Assyrian period. That's from 1363 to 935 BC. And there's a shift that occurs during that period. In, in uh, I just want to read a quick paragraph about that. Between the 17th and 14th centuries BCE, the city-state of Ashur, run by merchants and governed by civic bodies, morphed into the territorial state of Assyria, ruled by kings, kings who followed an unabashedly expansionist ideology. Ashur was no, now no longer only the name of a god in a city. It was also the name of a land, end quote. So that, that's when the shift takes place from Asher, the name of a god, to Asher, the name of uh, a land, a, a name of a people. And also, it's also the name of a city. So it starts with the, the name of a god, it goes to the name of a city, and then it becomes the name of, of a whole land and a whole people group that we know now as the Assyrians. Next up, the Neo-Assyrian period. That's from 934 to 609 BC. And if 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 we know anything about Assyria, it's usually this period, because this is the period that interacts with the Bible. So you've probably heard a lot of the, the names of the kings during this time. 
there is a famous king who uh, we, we found his library in the 1850s, and we have a lot of tablets from that library. Gilgamesh was part of that library. The Enuma Elish, a lot of, a lot of, uh, of books that we have were, were in that, that library. So it's, it's a very famous library, a very famous king be, because of that. And um, if you've been to any of the major museums, you've probably seen the artwork during that time of Ashurbanipal. Where is this? Well, this uh, Assyria was in what we know of as northern Iraq. Uh, so southern Iraq would be where Babylon was, and Babylon was Akkad in the north and Sumer in the south. So you've got northern Iraq, which was Assyria, and then southern Iraq, what we know of as, as Iraq, as, as uh, the southern part would be Bab- Babylon. Um, <clears throat> a lot of what was previously known about Assyria really came from the Bible and from Greek texts and some some other texts. What's really cool is that uh, in in finding these tablets, for, uh, really in the last 170 years, roughly, we have so many different tablets now from this time period. And they are sitting in museums. Not all of them have been read, uh, but they're, we're learning more and more about Assyria every year. And that's just a neat thing. I mean, you, you think of how back, far back this history goes, and yet we're, we're getting texts, and, and a lot of these texts and a lot of these tablets are just everyday things. They're not like stories. They're not, uh, some of them are stories, some of them are, are, are religious texts, but the majority of them are just day-to-day things like um, transactions and and just things, everyday life things. I mean, it'd be like somebody uh, coming into, you know, seeing our houses 2,000 years from now, and and maybe our libraries are, are gone, but they're going through drawers, and they see receipts, and they they see notes uh, between between people or notes for, for business purposes or, or transactions. And, and that's the kind of things that, that, that we're discovering as, as well as libraries, but, um, these kind of everyday things that just give a really neat insight into the people of the, of the time. This book was a really good introduction to Assyria. Uh, if, if you are just looking for a place to start to kind of get your bearings with, with Assyria, this would, be, this would be a great place to start. The author, Eckhart Fromm, is professor of Assyriology in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Yale. And Yale has a huge collection of cuneiform tablets, and so it's kind of a center for this period. And so this, this author is, is located right there at Yale. And, uh, this, it was, a it was an easy book to read a lot of great information. Uh, I starred all over this book there. There's some great maps and, and, uh, some great artwork depicted as, as well for reading stats. I like to share this just so you know how might, how long it might take you to read. It's a 428 page book. It took me 12 hours and nine minutes to read it. That was over eight days. And so that averaged 54 pages per day. I read it between May 15 and 23. So for the rest of this episode, uh, it'll be two more segments in the next segment. I'm going to cover some things I learned, uh, some connection points to the Bible and, uh, a, a little bit about Ashurbanipal who is is just a really interesting leader. And then in segment three, I will cover the one thing, my one key takeaway from reading about Assyria. The subtitle of this book is The Rise and Fall of the World's First Empire. 
And if you listen to uh, some of the other episodes from this year, especially the one about Inhetawana, there there's a little argument on that on on what is the world's first empire. So when I when I read about Inhetawana, her father was Sargon of of Acadia, the the founder really of of the Acadian Empire, and. Uh, as as I just said, Akkadian Empire. Some would consider that to be the first empire because Sargon combined a lot of different areas. And so it, what's interesting is I'm reading a book right now about Babylon, and that author talks about what or, or asks the question, what does it what does it mean to be an empire? What makes up an empire? And so there's a neat discussion there. I, I, maybe I'll I'll cover that when I cover the the Babylon book. But but either way, uh, either Assyria or or Akkadia was was the was the first empire, but for the sake of this book, let's let's talk about this 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 empire of of Assyria, and I want to start with with talking about Ashurbanipal, and he was he was the ruler from. There's a nice little king list in in this book. He was the ruler from 668 to 631 BC, and we know him from his library. We know him from these tremendous uh, depictions of him on stone and in different materials. Uh, I just saw one a few months ago in, in the museum in Edinburgh and there, there's just, just this stone with, with cuneiform writing on it and in a depiction of Ashurbanipal. But I want to read a few s- sections here about him. Uh, I found him, found him to be very interesting. This is him writing now, Ashurbanipal, I learned the craft of the sage Adapa, the secret lore of all of the scribal arts. I have become well-read in the signs of heaven and earth, and I can discuss them in an assembly of scholars. I can argue with expert diviners about if the liver is a mirror of heaven. I can resolve complicated divisions and multiplications that do not have an easy solution. I have read cunningly written texts in obscure Sumerian and Akkadian that are difficult to interpret. I have carefully examined cuneiform signs on stones dating from before the flood, whose meaning is sealed, inaccessible, and confusing. End quote. Now, that that last thing of carefully examining cuneiform signs on stones dating from before the flood, if you listen to the Gilgamesh episode or if you've read Gilgamesh, you that turn of phrase might sound a little a little familiar, and so in Gilgamesh, uh, Gilgamesh at the very beginning says, or, or the 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 book about Gilg the the narration at the beginning says he saw the secret and uncovered the hidden. He brought back instruction from before the flood. So uh, end quote. So you can see a, a connection there uh, with with Ashurbanipal in in Gilgamesh, and when we when we talk about Gil, uh, Ashurbanipal's library. The Epic of Gilgamesh was one of the books in there. And in fact, Ashurbanipal wanted to be like Gilgamesh. And and uh, kind of, you see it right there in that that, that description of, of dating before the flood, that, that thing. So uh, what, what's interesting is that Ashurbanipal ruled Assyria while his brother ruled Babylon. And you can imagine how went that, how well that went. Uh, brother rivalry did not go well. They fought, and um, that's part of the the history there as well. Let me read a little bit here about his library. When Austin Henry Layard and his workmen in 1850 discovered the first of these collections in the Southwest Palace, they were astonished by the large number of clay tablets they had stumbled upon. And then now this goes into. Uh, 
Austin Henry Layard's description. To the height of one foot or more from the floor, the chambers were entirely filled with tablets, some entire, but the greater part broken into many fragments, fragments, probably by the falling in of the upper part of the building. They were of different sizes. The largest tablets were flat and measured around nine inches by six and a half inches, and some were not more than an inch long, but with one or two lines of writing. The cuneiform characters on most of them were singularly sharp and well-defined, but minute. End quote. And, and that part of the quote, and then I'm going back into uh, the other thing written about this. Almost all the tablets from Nineveh, those from Layard's excavations, are well as, as well as others that were found later were brought to the British Museum in London. Its, its collection comprises today some 30,000 tablets and fragments. fragments. End quote. I'm going to skip down a little bit and start reading again. It seems that the king sought to assemble at Nineveh all the written knowledge ever produced in ancient Mesopotamia. Two groups of texts were particularly essential to him, omen treat, treaties and rituals and incantations, end quote. So just fascinating. I mean, can you imagine coming upon this this library of, of all these tablets and, and realizing that Ashurbanipal had tried to collect all of the written knowledge ever produced in ancient Mesopotamia? And here they found this library. Yes, a lot of the tablets were broken, but but pretty much in intact. That is is incredible. Uh, let me read what was actually in this library. Of particular interest to modern audiences are the historical and literary texts found among the tablets from Ashurbanipal's libraries. Among the latter, the famous Epic of Gilgamesh takes pride of place. Its protagonist, the tragic hero Gilgamesh, who finds fame but strives in vain for physical immortality, was a role model for Ashurbanipal. Other mythological epics from the libraries include the Babylonian Epic of Creation, the Era Epic, and the Epic of Anzu. End quote. On a side note here, I found this to be very interesting, and this is a, a note about the literacy rates of Assyrian towns. So here we go. Many free, citizen, many free citizens in Assyrian towns seem to have been literate. One out of every three private houses excavated in Ashur has yielded in a cuneiform archive with business documents and quite a few also contain libraries with literary, religious, and scholarly texts. Elsewhere, a significant portion of Assyria's urban population could likewise read and write. So far, some 30 sites across Western Asia have produced private archives with legal and economic texts from the Neo-Assyrian period. End quote. That's, that's astonishing. I mean, to think it, at that time, one out of every three houses would have had a, some sort of a, a library or archive of, of texts of cuneiform texts. And some of those were literary, religious, and scholarly texts. One out of three, that, that, that's a high literacy rate, or, or, or especially a high library rate of, of having that in, in, in a home. I mean, it has to be uh, one of the higher rates from around that time. So that, man, that, that's really neat. And then with Ashurbanipal, he, he also inspired someone else that we have heard of. And so let me read this. Saddam Hussein, Iraq's brutal dictator from 1979 to 2003, was particularly fond of the Babylonian kings Hammurabi, 
the great lawgiver who turned Babylon into a major political player, and Nebuchadnezzar too, the conqueror of Jerusalem. But Assyria loomed large in his imagination as well. Billboards put up near Nineveh displayed Saddam as a new Ashurbanipal, hunting lions from an Assyrian-style chariot. End quote. Uh, so yeah, Saddam Hussein was also a, a, a also really was enamored with Ashurbanipal and, and even had some imagery that was, was showing him in a, in a similar light. Let's move now to the, the use of mass deportation. So deportation, when Assyria would, would conquer an area or, or go into an area, they would de, uh, deport the people. So here's what, what they, here's a, a part about that. Uh, a key element of Syrian foreign politics, such mass de deportations helped fracture local identities and provided Assyrian rulers with a large workforce for their building projects and the development of new agricultural lands, end quote. So that's one side of it. When they would go in, they would, they would deport the people who lived in those areas. But there's a second part of that, and that was repopulation. So let me read this. When people from a specific region were relocated to another, they were now often replaced by deportees from somewhere else. End quote. So, so let's look at it, Israel. When Assyria had gone into Israel, they, they, uh, they deported the people of Israel to other locations. But they also repopulated people from other locations to Israel. And they would do this all over. So it's not just Israel, but but this plays a huge part in the history of the kingdom of Israel. And uh, we, we get into that here. So the most famous mass deportation ever carried out in Neo-Assyrian times was that of the people of Israel after that conquest of Samaria in 722 BC. Now, uh, let me read a final part here. As second king... Kings 17.6 states, the king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria. He placed them in Hala on the harbor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Later on, on balance, it seems that the deported Israelites fared quite well in their new environments. While the Sumerians were transferred to a variety of locations in the heart of the Assyrian Empire and on its eastern borders, people from other areas were newly settled in Samaria and the emptied lands of the former kingdom of Israel. In 715 BCE, as noted in his inscription, Sargon brought to Samaria a number of Arab tribes from the margins of the Syro-Arabian Desert. According to the Bible, Samaria was also resettled with people from Babylon, Kutha, Hamath, and a few other cities. And even though neither Sargon nor any later Assyrian king mentions these population transfers, they may well have happened. To what extent this redevelopment program really led to an economic revival of the region remains unclear. Based on archaeological survey, it has been argued that Samaria and its hinterland actually suffered a significant decline after the Assyrian conquest of 722. Judah and other polities further south that became Assyrian client states, but were not annexed, appear to have fared much better. End quote. I, I read this just because I, 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 be, I was very interested in the connection to the Bible talked about in this book about Assyria, obviously the, the empire of Assyria, the Neo-Assyrian empire, that time frame was what coincided time-wise with, with uh, a, a large part of the, 
the Hebrew Bible. And so it, it, it's neat to learn about, to read a book like this and then to see some of the archaeology and uh, other documents and how, how they portray what's found in the Bible. And so you get it from one side and then you get it from, from another uh, from from another side. So let me read one one part here. And this comes towards the end of the book uh, after he's talked about a lot of different connection connection points with the Bible. But studying the Bible in its ancient Near Eastern setting remains instructive. One thing it can help with is to underscore the truly revolutionary character of the Bible. Only by focusing on how biblical narratives and legal texts draw on, but then modify their Mesopotamian models, is it possible to gain an idea of how radically new many religious and political ideas developed in the Hebrew Bible actually are. At the same time, by virtue of being opposition literature, the Bible provides crucial information on how disenfranchised subjects, especially in the beleaguered or conquered imperial periphery, perceived the Assyrian, Babylonian, and Persian empires. This view from the margins is a perspective rarely encountered in the cuneiform record, end quote. So I loved those two points there. First is just to read the biblical narratives and, and and, and to see these texts in this time period and to see the, the difference that the, the Hebrew Bible was, was referring to these things. And this is something that has really struck me this year. If you've listened to some of the, the previous episodes, it, it's something that has, has struck me in a lot of my reading this year in, in just kind of re, reorienting the the Bible in my mind in, in the sense of the Bible responding to what's going on around it in, in the sense that we're getting more and more of the texts of that time. And we're seeing more and more connection points, whether that's of the flood or, or, or different laws or different things like that. Uh, we're seeing interactions with these different cultures, with the different texts and ideas. And so the, the, the writer's the Hebrew Bible, they're, they're responding to these things. It's not, it, the, the thing just didn't just drop out of the air and, and here it is, but it's, it's in response to a lot of these things. So I, I love how he wrote about that. And then I love the second point too, just of, of how the, the Bible is quite unique during this time period in that it's opposition literature and it's, it's literature by the exiles. It's literature by the defeated. And you just don't get that a lot. Uh, the things, things would have been wiped out most everywhere else. Uh, you don't, you don't get the perspective of the, the people who were, who were conquered. So, uh, some, uh, I loved that last section there. I want to highlight a few other just interesting things I came out, uh, or, or I, I came across in this book and that I, I didn't know. And, and I thought I'd share them and maybe you find them interesting as well. So I'm just going to read different sections here. So the first is about the homes and the houses of, of ancient uh, Assyria. The houses in which the citizens of Ashur dwelled during middle Assyrian times varied in, in size from some 750 to 2,600 square feet and usually included a reception room, a courtyard, a bathroom, toilet facilities, and a main living room. 
Many people lived with skeletons in their closets, burying their deceased family members below the floors of their living rooms in vaulted brick chambers accessible by stairs, end quote. I, I found that fascinating. I mean, just first the square footage, 750 to 2,600 square feet, that's, that's huge. Uh, this is a house that, that's huge. It had a bathroom. It had toilet facilities. I just always kind of thought, People just always went in in outhouses or, or something like that. But these these are, are houses with bathroom and, and toilet facilities. Um, so that's the first thing that stuck out. Second thing is uh, planting trees. So here's one of the kings. Tigloth uh, Pilliser. And let me just uh, make a quick statement. I've, I've never heard these names pronounce, pronounced. Uh, I've, I went to Google and, and did the, the, you know, how to pronounce them. But I, I, I've not heard these things pronounced. I've not studied them. And so I'm going to butcher so many things in these podcast episodes. I apologize to anyone who actually knows how to say these words. I, I do try on, on some instances to, to, to listen to, to find out how they are pronounced. But I, I, I'm going to butcher a lot of things. But Tiglath Pileser is also the first Assyrian ruler whose inscriptions talk about the planting of trees from foreign countries in newly created parks in the Assyrian heartland. End quote. I, th- I thought that was cool. He would, he would collect trees from different areas and then, um, and then planted them in this, this beautiful garden. Next up, uh, administration. So to save resources, only places of great strategic importance and hotbeds of opposition were placed by them under direct Assyrian administration, end quote. So this goes into something I asked uh, Dr. Jason Staples about in the episode about the, the Bible. And he said, you know, during this, this, this time, the ancient time, when, when areas were conquered, they, they wouldn't stay there. Like Assyrians would conquer an area. They wouldn't stay there unless, as this quote says, it was of great strategic importance or it was a hotbed of opposition. Otherwise, they would just turn it into a vassal state that would pay tribute and, and tax and then provide troops as well. So that that's the building of an empire where you're, you're taking over these areas, but you're not completely wiping them out because you need the resources from those areas and you need the tax from those areas, but it's too complicated to actually rule those areas. So that, that's kind of the, what, what happens in, in a lot of these cases. Another part of this book I, I thought I found very interesting is especially in the battles between Assyria and Babylon, there would be what was called godnapping. So instead of kidnapping, there there would be godnapping. So gods were their their physical manifestation was in the form of of idols, and these would be in temples. And so if you conquered an area, if you went into the temple and grabbed this idol and took it took it away, you were godnapping. And uh, there's just you know it's just kind of going back and forth. And it, and it was it was interesting that you know one king would go from Assyria into Babylon and and take their gods, and then a few kings later in Assyria they would return the gods because there's this idea that you you just don't do that. You don't you don't go in and steal gods. Uh, bad things could happen, bad omens and all that. So it, just uh, 
uh, I found that to be interesting. And just that term to God damping was, was really funny. Uh, another uh, of the Kings, Sennacherib, uh, you probably heard his name from, from the Bible. He repurposed the Enuma Elish and transformed it into an Assyrian text. So I still have not covered the Enuma Elish, but I, I have read it as part of the Great Books Project. And in fact, a lot of the, the books I'm reading right now about these empires, uh, part of that is just to get a broader scope about, of of the impact of the Enuma Elish, and and that that is the Babylonian epic of creation, and it's a very short book, but um, but what what's interesting is it, is it originated in Babylon, but then uh, Sennacherib. Uh, he transformed it into this Assyrian text. And so he would replace the name. So instead of it being talking about the god Marduk of of Babylon, he would change the name to uh, uh, the god Ashur, who is the the Assyrian god. And there were a number of different connection points in this book about Assyria to the Enuma Elish. And and I really enjoyed that and appreciated that and, and hope to cover the Enuma Elish in an upcoming episode. There was no written law, that, uh, at least of, of what of the tablets they have found. There was no Assyrian code of law. And so the king was kind of the the arbiter of 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 what was what was law in a sense, but it, it was not written written down. Uh, in excavations of the city of Nineveh, when that city was attacked, uh, the the excavations have have revealed skeletons that remained where they were when they fell during the sack of the city. And that was like 20, 2,600 years ago or something. And the people are still in the, the same spot they would have been when, uh, when, when the, the, when it, when the city was sacked. I just found that so interesting. Uh, imagine just going through that, that city and kind of uncovering, uh, these layers of, of dirt and silt. And then you, you dig down and you see these people, uh, probably with, with weapons possibly still in them, uh, whether it's a bow or something or, uh, an arrow and, uh, just in the spot that they fell for all those many years is just uh, wild to think about. When Assyria did fall, it was a quick fall, and and after that they ceased to exist. It it was just gone. Assyria was gone, and they were at the top. They were at the top of the game, and then it was a very quick fall. And and uh, as we know, Babylon took them over. The irony of all this is just uh, that we are learning more and more, as I mentioned earlier, and, and it's because so much was written on clay tablets. What's interesting is that around 600 BC, these empires switched to writing on leather and papyrus, and those things do not have the shelf life of clay tablets. And so we actually, uh, in some instances, know more of what happened in ancient times than in more recent times of, of history because of the way that the information was was recorded and and, and um, written on these tablets uh, with these clay tablets of, of, of the cuneiform. So those are some things that, that stuck out to me in this book. If you're interested in Assyria, this this would be a great place for you to start. So that that, that closes out segment two here. Uh, the next segment I'll cover the one thing, my one key takeaway from this book about Assyria. Well, the thing that stuck out to me most about this book is just that connection to the Bible. And... You, you learn about Assyria in one way, and 
you learn about it from the vantage point of the conquered, of the people who are, are exiled. And to read about it from the other side, to, to learn about what is happening in Assyria at that time, to, to learn about things like that they were uh, a hub of international trade, that that, that trade and merchant, uh, the, the people being merchants, it was a huge deal in Assyria. And so you, um, obviously they're, they're out conquering as well. But um, just to get that side of the story and, and then to, to combine that with the side of the story from the Bible, I, uh, later on I've got some of the great books coming up that, that go into more of the history of Assyria and they're written from the Greek side. And, uh, and so I, I look forward to, to seeing that side of it as well. And just kind of the broader scope of understanding this time. And even if the people of Israel, when they were exiled to Assyria, what would that have been like? How would they have been treated? There was one part of this book that says, uh, uh, um, the concept of an Assyrian, when when they when they conquered a, a people and those people came to live in Assyria, they were considered Assyrian. So they just they were kind of assimilated into the culture, and uh, yes, they probably came as as slaves in many cases. Um, just you know, probably not the best of circumstances, but they they were considered to be Assyrian, and just to read about the libraries to read about the the way of life and that was one thing that was was neat just to to kind of see some of that as well of of what what would life have been for for an average person in Assyria at at the time not just the kings and it's it's fun to learn about the kings and and all that but uh what about just the average person what what would life have been like for them this this book helps in just being able to go to a museum as well. Uh, I'm, I'm headed to the UK here soon, and I am going to spend a day in the British Museum, and I can't wait. And, and I want to spend a lot of time in the Assyrian section and just see these these things that have been uncovered from, from that area. Uh, I want to spend time in the Babylonian section as well and the Persian section. But just to, to, to know a little bit more about these, these areas. And, and then also in these books, you just see so much of like, you know, this, this thing is in this museum, uh, at Yale, or this one, this is in the British museum, or this is in this museum here. Uh, the, the tragedy of it as well is just, uh, a lot of these books that I've read this year, the last chapter is about the war in Iraq in the early two thousands and just how, much that devastated a lot of the the artifacts that we have, uh, whether it was from the Baghdad Museum or different areas, and then even with ISIS kind of targeting different areas to to destroy works from these ancient Assyrian time time periods. It's, it's sad to read about that. It's sad to to know that for having survived all these thousands of years that during our lifetime, a lot of these things have been, have been destroyed. Um, it's kind of the, the balance you have here, but the, the other side of that is we're, we're gathering more and more tablets. There's so many that haven't been read yet. It's, it's going to be an exciting time to, to see what else we, we learn about Assyria. So if you are looking for a book, uh, just to get a, a good 
basic understanding of Assyria, this is a great place to start. It goes through all the kings. It goes through through the different time periods. Uh, you get a glimpse of life, what it would have been like. You get uh, a, a glimpse of the history at that time, the the major battles, uh, and and you see something from another side of 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 another point of view. If if you've if you've seen the Assyria uh, uh, the exiles. If you've seen it from the, the side of the Bible, it's just cool to match that with the text that we have from Assyria and to see the the battle from, from their point of view. I, I recommend this book. I, ho- I hope you do read it. If you do read it, I'd love to hear about it. You can email me at eric at booksoftitans.com. Please visit the website as well. I have a, a ton of resources there. I have my great books list. It's it's going to change uh, over the the next few years, but um, I I also have my 2023 reading list there as well, where I'm kind of mixing and matching the great books with some guidebooks and, and some books that I'm pairing with those to, to, to learn more. Best thing you can do is, is to go to the website and sign up for the newsletter, and I will keep you informed just with what I'm reading and, and uh, what the plans are going forward. So, until until I'm back uh, in a couple weeks, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out. Mm-hmm.